Good morning. Trust everyone's having a good week. Going to dive in and get started this morning. We are, as you know, about a week away from uh, November, right? And Thanksgiving is upon us. It's that Thanksgiving season. And uh, if you're on social media, there will be a few things that are going to be coming your way. One of them will be like the 30-day Thanksgiving challenge, right? Where everybody goes on and they post a picture, right, of a loved one or a family member or something that they're thankful for. So they may say, hey, thankful for my wife or thankful for my husband or uh, thankful for air because it's 90 degrees in Florida in November, right? And then so we'll spend the whole month rehearsing, talking about thankfulness. And we will be inundated with it. It will be everywhere. And that's a good thing because we need to be reminded to be thankful. But before there were phrases like uh, reminding each other to count your blessings or hashtag blessed or any of those types of things, Scripture is going to remind us over and over and over and over again that we are to be people who are thankful. That we are called to be people who are thankful. Being thankful is good for you, right? It's not just uh, spiritually good for you, like it's physically good for you. You've ever met people who are just grumpy, right? And they're like, they're, they're just like miserable all the time, right? And it seems like they always have aches and pains and stuff like that to go with it at times, right? Grateful people, it does something for you. And we've been called to be thankful and grateful people. And one of the places that, that this is going to constantly come up is in the Psalms, Right? The Psalms are going to constantly remind us that we are to praise the Lord, that we are to be thankful to the God who saved us. And the Psalms, if you don't know, they're this collection in the Old Testament. It's the largest book in the Bible, and it's this collection of Hebrew uh, poetry and songs and hymns and prayers. And it was their prayer book, right? They would have come to the temple and they would have used the Psalms as their worship book. It would have been the songs that, like we sung songs this morning, the, the, the book of Psalms would have been the, the songs that they sang and the prayers that they prayed. It was even the book that Jesus used for his prayer life, right? So you get to the end of his life and he's on the cross and he's being crucified and he says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And sometimes we read that and we don't make the connection. We think, here's this guy in pain, and he's asking, why is God forsaken and why has the Father left him? But he's directly quoting Psalm 22. That in the most difficult moment of his life, what does he pull from? He pulls from the prayers that he's been taught as a kid, and he's prayed over and over and over and over through the years. It was in him. It was part of who he was. And as he sits there on that cross and praise that prayer. He's connecting not only to his heavenly father, but he's connecting back to those prayers that he was taught as he grew up. And so this morning, I want us to look at a psalm because the psalms aren't just for individuals. You know, sometimes in our American context, we live in a hyper-individualistic society, right? We like, we like the individual. But the psalms are also not just prayers for individuals, but they are prayers and songs for us as a church, as a community. I want us to look this morning at Psalm 136. Psalm 136 was often called the great hymn, the great psalm of praise. And they would sing it together in the, in the temple and worship the Lord. And it was a reminder of who God was and who God is and what he had done for them as a people. And this is a, a responsive reading in our tradition. We don't do a lot of responsive reading. How many of you have been to a church where they do this kind of thing before, responsive reading? So I'm going to have you stand this morning because I read the whole thing in the first service and it's a lot to read. So I'm going to need your help this morning, if you would. We're going to stand. We're going to honor God's word. And here's the way this will work. I'm going to say a line and then you as a congregation, your line is this. 
Your faithful, his faithful love endures forever. Easy, that's all you got to say. His faithful love endures forever. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to read Psalm 136. Here we go, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to him alone who does mighty miracles. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. Give thanks to him who placed the earth among the waters. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. The sun to rule the day. And the moon and stars to rule the night. Give thanks to him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He acted with a strong hand and a powerful arm. Give thanks to him who parted the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. We'll stop right there. Father, we love you. God, your faithful love endures forever. And that is not something we just say, or we're just repeating just to be repeating, Lord, it is the truth. Your faithful love endures forever. And Father, we thank you for your presence that's in this room, and we thank you for your power that is working in our lives, and we ask today that you would show up and, God, from your word, draw us one step closer to Jesus. Father, before we go any further, we pray for this family member of Angie's, Lord. We ask that you would, God, reach down and touch God, Javier, as he's in the hospital with COVID. We pray for your healing power to flow into that hospital room in the name of Jesus. Not because of anything that we've done, but because your faithful love endures forever. God, bring healing and bring a touch to that body. And where doctors say that it can't be done and that they can't do anything, Lord, you are able. And Lord, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to be in this psalm this morning and this evening. We're going to kind of pick up the second half. But I, I want us to really be reminded this morning of this, that we should give thanks because God's faithful love endures forever. Real simple message, but I think it's a reminder that we need, and I want us to look at this psalm. First of all, this psalm reminds us that we should give thanks because God is good and God is in control. God is good and God is in control. This psalmist opens here and he brings this appeal to give thanks to God for He is good. Right? And we sang it this morning, give thanks to the Lord, uh, give thanks to Him forever, forever He is gracious and forever He is good to us. And so the psalmist opens here by reminding us that God is good. What does it mean that God is good? Well, we're going to get into that in a moment as he dives in further, but he opens by saying, give thanks. Now, we miss it here with our English translation. We said, just say, give thanks, and we think again, thanksgiving, and just some things we're thankful for. But the idea here is actually that they were to come together as a congregation, to come together as a people, and confess the goodness of God. 
and to, to, to just say to one another how good God is, more than just simply giving thanks. They were to talk about it and go, man, God's, God's been so good to me. He's been good in my life. He, he did this, this, and this for me this week. Man, His faithful love endures forever. That this is deeper than just an expression of thankfulness, and it's deeper than just coming in and singing a few songs. It's actually thinking through the good things that God has done for us and actually confessing them and saying them out loud and saying, man, God has been so good. I just am, I'm so grateful that he's, he's blessed me. I'm so grateful for the family that he's given me. I'm so grateful for the salvation that he's worked in my life. I'm so grateful for, and as we come together and we share that with one another, Man, it encourages us, it challenges us, and what we're doing is this, is we're reminding ourselves of who God is. That we're making this confession, we're making this declaration, this is who our God is. And He deserves the thanks, and He deserves the praise, and He deserves the glory, and we are making this declaration of how good He is. And he goes on to tell us that God is not only worthy of our Thanks, but he says this, that God is the God of gods. Now this would have been important for them as they gathered together in their temple to worship, is that they lived in a time period in which every nation sort of had their own gods and goddesses, right? And the way that it would work is, uh, think of it like a bully on a playground, like these nations would often fight with each other. And when one would go to war against another and win, what they would do is they took that as a sign that, hey, my God is bigger than your God, and he's more powerful, so I, we get to rule the playground, right? We're, we're bigger than you. Our God is more powerful than you. And what God is saying here is, I don't play by those rules. I don't play by those games. I am the God of gods. I, I, there, like, there is no one my rival. There is no one my equal. There, there is no being in all of the universe that's going to come against me. I am the God of gods. Like these other nations that think that their gods are something, they are nothing compared to me. I stand above them all. And I think this is important to remember because sometimes in our theology, right, we get, it, we get it mixed up, right? We think that there's good and there's bad, and the good side has God, right, and the bad side has Satan, and that they're equal, and they sort of like duke it out. But there is no one who can rival our God. He... He is the God of God. There's no one close to Him. And so the psalmist is reminding them in a culture where they would have seen uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of other gods and goddesses and where they would have been tempted to think along those lines, hey, they just, they just beat up this other nation. They just won the war. Their God must be powerful. Where they're tempted to think that God, they're, they're going to come into corporate worship and they're going to sing, you are the God above all gods and your steadfast and faithful love endures forever. And it's going to remind them, man, God is bigger. And I hope this morning as we sang this, as we read this, it reminds you that your God is bigger than anything that you face. Amen. That there is none his rival. There is none even his equal. That he, he is above all. And the psalmist goes on to tell us that he is the Lord of lords. And some commentators believe that this is sort of a switch where he talks about God of gods as he's talking about the spiritual realm. And when he says, Lord of lords, what he's saying is, there is no human my equal. There, there's no kingdom that's greater than me. There's no king. There's no empire. There, all of those are nothing compared to God. And so not only is he in control of the universe and the, the spiritual world, but he's also in control of the physical world and the world in which we live. And, you know, we, we live in a world where, uh, you know, we talk a lot about politics and who's in control and, and leadership, but God says, no, 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 I'm above 
every bit of that. I stand above all the kings of the world. I stand above all the kingdoms. I stand above all of it. And as they would gather together and recite and sing this psalm, this would open with this reminder, man, God is good, and He deserves my thanks. His steadfast, His faithful love endures forever. And not only that, but He's not just good, He's in control. He's the God above all gods and the Lord above all lords. And I, I want to remind you this morning of this, that God is both good and in control. And it's important that we remember both of those things, right? Because if God is just in control but not good, we have a problem, right? I like watch, anybody like watching superhero movies sometimes besides me, right? And you've got, you got this villain, right, who's always in the movie. And the villain has all of this power, but he's not very good. And what does he do? He wreaks havoc on the world because he's got all this power, but he's no good. And so if God is just in control but not good, man, we have every right to be scared and afraid and sort of run for the hills, right? We're in trouble. And if God is, in, if God is good but not in control, then we have a God who has good intentions but really can't do anything about the mess that we find ourselves in. But the psalmist reminds us that God is both good and in control. How good is God? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He is good beyond all others. Indeed, He alone is good in the highest sense. He's the source of good, the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, and the rewarder of good. For this, He deserves the constant gratitude of His people. Amen. Man, God is good. But here's the deal. Sometimes we face things in life, and it doesn't feel like God is good. And it doesn't feel like God is really in control. Let's just be honest. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who uh, did something, said something to you, and they just made you outright, like, angry, right? They made you angry. They said something, and you were just, like, you're just fuming mad, right? And you go away, and you, you steam on it for a little while, and the longer that it sort of builds up within you, the more you're, like, you sort of start to get over it, right? And you want to stay mad because you know you should be mad, and so you're like trying to like work that anger up, but the longer that you sit there with it, the more you realize two things. Number one, they were probably right. And number two, they did not wish you ill intention. They had good intentions when they said what they said. And sometimes I think when we're dealing with God, we forget that God never has a bad thought, a bad intention towards us. Like sometimes we think that God is out to get us. But if God is good, and this is part of, it's not, just, it's not just what he does, it's who he is, right? God is good. He's not, he doesn't just do good, he is good. And there's a big, massive difference. Listen, God cannot be anything other than who he is. If he is good, then it is impossible for him to be bad. Yeah. If he is love, then it is impossible for him not to love you. And he has this... Uh, goodness and this love that he pours out towards us. And listen, we go through things sometimes we do not understand. And we face issues that we don't want to face. And sometimes we're tempted to say, God is not good, but we cannot do that because in those moments, although we might not be able to see it, God's intentions towards us are always loving and good. If you're a parent or grandparent in the room, you know what it's like, right? To have to discipline your child and at the moment, they don't think it's very good, right? They, they, it is like you're making them suffer. 
But in the end, you know that what you're doing is for their good. And sometimes God sees things and does things in our lives that we don't understand, but it is for our good. And listen, this is not a cop-out. And this is not, I know it doesn't really help sometimes whenever we're in the middle of it, but it is the truth. That there are things when we're in the midst of suffering and pain we've got to hold on to. One is God is good. Two is God loves you. And three, God is in control. And I want to clarify something. When we say God is in control, what I don't mean is that God caused everything to happen, God made everything happen, and that God uh, is able to fix everything right at this moment. Sometimes I think when we say God is in control, right, we think he's up in heaven at like this switchboard, like, and he's, he's making everything like work. I, I have a lot to learn and I might be wrong, but I, I don't think that's the way that it works. We live in a fallen, broken world. There's a lot of stuff happen that I, 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 I don't, I just have to be honest, I don't know, there, I, I would say there is a reason, but I don't know the reason, and I'm not sure we ever will know the reason. There, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world because it's sinful, it's fallen, and it has nothing to do with anything that God has done. Not nothing. But here's what I think we have to remember when we say that God is in control, is that we have to think long term, right? At the end of the day, when everything is said and done, there is going to come a moment in which God will right every wrong, in which he will wipe every tear from every eye, in which he will heal every sickness, in which... uh, everything will be made new. We are not there yet. And I don't know if, like, the situation that maybe you're facing, if God is going to take care of that now or later. What I do know is that he will take care of it. Amen. And I think that's where we have to land. Is that whether he does it now or whether he does it at the end, he's going to do it, and he is good, and his way of seeing and doing things is beyond me and you And so we have to settle in and say, God, I don't understand it, but I know that you're good. God, I don't understand it, but I know that you're in control. God, I don't understand it, but I know that there's coming a day in which you will wipe every tear from every eye. You will heal every sickness. You will reverse the curse and brokenness that sin has caused, and you will make all things new. And that is, we we don't talk about that enough in those terms, right? That is why it's called the blessed hope. That that we don't have hope just in this world. Paul said this, if we have hope in this world only, man, we're miserable. We don't have hope just in this world. We have hope that there is coming another world in which God will make all things new. And we must remember that him being in control doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to jump in and fix everything that goes wrong in your life. As a matter of fact, there are moments where he does not jump in and fix everything that's wrong. I wish I knew why. That's like, that's the million dollar question, right? I wish that I knew why. But what I do know is that in the end, God is going to take care of it all. And I look forward with anticipation for that day as he does, when he does. And so this psalmist is telling us this, that we should give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He's a good God. And he's a God who's not only good, but he's in control. And then the the psalmist moves forward and he goes from he goes into the specifics as to why, why is this God so good? Why is this a God who we can give thanks to? And he begins with this appeal to, to nature. He reminds us that God created the world. And he reminds us that everything that we live in is God's creation and it's given to us to bless us and to point us towards him. He, he tells us that 
that the words he uses point us back to Genesis. If you remember, God creates the world, and as he creates each thing, what does he say? It is, it is good. He creates the, the stars and the moon and the sun and says, it is good. He creates the animals and says, it is good. He creates the plants and says, it is good. He creates and forms man and woman, and he says, it is very good. That this is a God who created these things for us. This psalm reminds us, as we look back at it, it reminds us that God alone does wonders. That God alone is the one who's in control of nature. That God made the heavens and everything you look up and see. That God put the earth in its place. That God made the sun and the stars. That everything you see around you is a wonderful testament to this incredible creator who loves each and every one of us. In my, I'm teaching a, a class on Wednesday nights, and uh, one of the, the things we're talking about is this, is what are the different ways in which people connect with God? So how, how do they connect with God? And it's really kind of talking about what I would say is like almost spiritual temperaments. And one of them is this, is uh, the author calls it the naturalist. And you might be one of these if you go right outside and you go for a walk and you see a flower and it just, like something in your heart just wells up and you just want to worship. Or if you ever see those nice Florida sunrises, right, or sunsets and you see it and it's just like, wow, God, God is good. God is good. Or you go to the mountains, right, in, uh, in, in Florida we have like second vacation where we, go to, we all go to the mountains because you love the mountains and I don't understand why you love the mountains so much. I grew up not in the mountains, but like close enough, and uh, I, I'll take the beach over the mountains any day. I was uh, with my wife, and we were driving up to Tennessee to, to go to a funeral a couple years ago, and it's been a long time since I've been through anything that wasn't flat, right, like Florida, and we were going up and down these hills and around these curves, and I was like, oh, Lord, no, like how did I do this as a child? Give me back to flat, the flat Florida, right? Flat land. But right, we see those mountains. The first time you see a mountain, the first time you see the beach, the first time you see snow, right? For you guys, you see a beach all the time. And me, when I was, I don't, I don't think I saw the beach until I was 15 or 16 years old. And just seeing that, right? And then the beauty of all that, that it's all supposed to point us towards our Creator. Now, we don't worship those things, Right? But we worship the God who created that there's something about that that calls us to say there is this good God and he is in control and he created all this and it is good and he put us here and that is good and he wants to work in our lives. Again, we don't worship it. Paul reminds us in Romans 1, he says this, that people, they often see the creation and rather than worshiping God, they choose to ignore God and they start worshiping creation. And he says, no, we don't do that. He says this, that, that God's God's invisible qualities, that they're made clear through the world that we see, that we can look at the world around us and it should point us to God, that it should make us stand in awe, that it should make us want to worship, that a sunrise or a flower or that animal that you see that you just have to take a picture of or whatever it is that as we see it, man, it just brings all into our lives and we begin to worship and praise the God who created us. And so this psalm, as they're sitting, if you can kind of go through it, as they're sitting in the congregation and they begin to sing this psalm, they would say, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. He's the God above all gods. His faithful love endures forever. He's the Lord above all lords. His faithful love endures forever. He created the heavens and the earth 
and the seas and the sun and the moon and the stars, his faithful love endures forever. And as they would sit there, it would just be this reminder of how good God is and how he had created this incredible world. And it would pull you in towards, towards God. And so not only do we need to give thanks because he's good and because he's in control and because he created the world, but we should also give thanks because God has saved us. He goes on, this goes on to get more specific. So he begins with this broad call to give thanks. And he moves towards creation and says we should give thanks for that. And now he's moving specifically to uh, things that the Israelites and the Hebrews would have been grateful for. And he moves towards this thankfulness for a God who had set them free from Egyptian slavery. If you remember the story, uh, the Israelites, if you go read, you can go read it in the book of Exodus, right? They had, been in, they had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. Now, 400 years is a long time, right? That's longer than we've been a country. Uh, that is not just, you know, you, your grandkids, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. We're talking like generations of people. And so you can imagine how ingrained in their, uh, in their life and in their psyche, right, the fact that they are slaves would have been 400 years. And God's made promises to them to deliver them, and 400 years, nothing. They just slave away under Pharaoh. And then you know the story, I'm sure, that God uh, speaks to this man named Moses, right? Through this burning bush. And if you've ever seen, it's probably the old Charlton Heston one, some of you, and probably like the DreamWorks animation uh, Prince of Egypt movie, right? This is, the, this is that story. And so God speaks to Moses and says, I need you to go back to Egypt. And you need to tell Pharaoh that famous line, let my people go, right? And so he goes back to Egypt and he stands in front of Pharaoh and he says, let, let the people go. We want to go because we're going to worship God. And Pharaoh says, nah, no, no go. We're not doing that. And so God strikes the land of Egypt with the plague, with, with 10 plagues. And the final plague is this, is the death of their firstborn son from the slave all the way to Pharaoh. And so there's grief and death all throughout Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh is done. He's had it up to here with Moses and with these plagues. And he says, all right, get them out of here. You're free. Go worship your God. And so the people of Israel, led by Moses, they move out into the wilderness and they're making their way. And they come to uh, this large body of water called the Red Sea. And they're kind of stopped and camped out there. And Pharaoh decides he's changed his mind. I can't let them go because it's, it's too good having them doing all this work for us. We need them. So he follows them, and you picture this. The people are pinned between the sea and Pharaoh, and they don't know what to do. And Moses kind of prays to God, and then he stands up, and he holds his rod out over the, uh, the waters, all right, and the water is split in two. Again, if you've seen the movies, you kind of have seen it happen. And they walk through, the people of Israel, they walk through on dry land. And then Pharaoh's like, all right, let's follow him. And he follows him, and the water comes crashing over him, and they drown. This is probably the most important moment in the history of Israel, where they move from slavery to freedom, where they move from being identified under Pharaoh's thumb that he is uh, in control of them so now they are free to worship God. They are free to be themselves. They are free to do what they like. They are free to serve God. So 400 years of slavery in a moment, now they are free. 
And so this was important. And as they would sit in this congregation and as they would sing this psalm, they were rehearsing all of the good things God has done for them. The God who made a way through the Red Sea, His faithful love endures forever. The God who, who, who struck down the firstborn in Egypt, His faithful love endures forever. The God who led us through the wilderness, His faithful love endures forever. And as they're sitting together and standing together in the congregation and they're saying this, man, their hearts would have just begun to worship and give praise and thanks to a God who had changed their very identity. No longer were they slaves. They're now free. That 400 years of their identity has now been gone, is now changed, and now in an instance, instant made different. And you see, we ought to give thanks to God because He has made a way for us to be freed from sin. You and I may not be physically slaves, but the Bible is clear that every one of us are slaves of sin. Amen. Man, we are all broken. Sin has worked its way into the world in such a way that it infects everything. Like there is, there is nothing that you see, touch, think, feel, uh, come into contact with that has not in some way been touched or tainted by the power of sin. And sin is primarily relational. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Sin does this. It disrupts our relationships so that you are no longer in right relationship with God. That, that, that there's something that happens deep inside of you and me that has happened that throws us off, and now we are, we are estranged from, we are away from, we are in wrong relationship to God. But it doesn't just stop there. Right? If you live in a house with more than just yourself, right? You know that you just don't have problems in relationship with God. We've got problems in relationship to each other. That sin has so sunk its teeth in that now we are, uh, we fight, we argue, we murder, we go to war, we have issues with one another, we gossip, we slander, we all like fill in the blanks of all the evil things we do to each other. All of that is the result of sin. It's, all, it's just messed our relationships with one another up. And like you can feel it. Like I don't, you don't have to believe the Bible to kind of like look around and see it, right? You, you can look, you can just like, just turn on the news, right? We're screwed up and we don't, we don't treat each other right and we don't, like it's broken. And not only is it broken between God and you and between you and others, but you are broken within yourself. Like, even if you were on an island by yourself, like, that, like you're still, there's like, you're broken. Like, and you know it deep down into your core. Again, you don't have to believe Scripture to kind of know, like, just look in your own life. Like, you are broken. I am broken. There's something fundamentally at the core of who we are that is busted. And even, like, even ourselves. Like, have, have you ever had that moment where you do something and you're like, where did that just come from? Anybody besides me? Right? Like, you, sin has messed you up. And even in yourself, like you don't know yourself as well as you think you do. You are capable of things far darker than you think you're capable of. There, even, even, even in your own like, mind, as you, as you speak to yourself and you, your thoughts, like all of that is tainted and flawed and messed up and broken because of sin. And it goes deep. And here's the thing. There is no way out of that on our own. None. Like, even our attempts to fix the problem are tainted by the problem, and we can't fix the problem. 
Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Even, our, even our attempts to fix the problem. The problem is that sin has gotten into that, and now we have problems. Like, if you remember history, right, back after uh, both World War I and World War II, right? World War I, we called it the war to end all wars. And we thought that we were going to sort of bring about peace. But even our attempt to fix the problem is tainted by the problem. You see where we are today. We get done with World War II and we want to put together, right, we put together the UN and we think that those types of things are going to solve the problem. But even our attempts to fix the problem are messed up by the problem. Even in your own life, right, if I could just do better, I'll just do better. And you try and maybe you succeed at that. But eventually you run into even your attempts to fix the problem are messed up by the problem. There's, there is no escaping it. It is like a, a picture of a snake that's like wound its way around you. And the more you try to wiggle free, the more it just grips down. Or like sand, right? Quicksand. I've never been in it, but I've seen it on TV, right? And so they say, right, the more you flail around, don't move around so much because it'll suck you in quicker, right? That's sin. We try to fix it on our own and it just, just bites its teeth in all the more. So what, what hope is there? And the New Testament's going to tell us this. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obeyed this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of her, his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages, says this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised, us, when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things which he planned for us long ago. What is Paul saying? It's the same idea of the Exodus, that those uh, Hebrews woke up one morning slaves in Egypt, and they went to bed that night free individuals that there was a move of their location, that they moved from slavery to freedom, and that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are no longer in slavery to sin, but we are in Christ. There has been a location change. You are now free in Christ. 
And what God has done has not merely been to modify our behavior. This is the thing I think sometimes we think, right? That I'm going to become a Christian, and that's by God's grace, wonderful. And now I have to be a good, good person. Like, that's what this is about. That is not what this is about. It is about fundamental change at the core of who you are. It is not just about... Like, you will be a better person. That's like a result. That's a, that's a product of it. But what's really happening when you get saved, what's really happening as you engage with Jesus, what's really happening as the Holy Spirit works in your life is fundamentally, deep down in your being, where sin had that hold and had that control, is you're fundamentally being changed. Like, your, your actual identity, like who you are, is actually changing. That you are not who you used to be any longer. That you are changing. It's not about modifying your behavior. It's not about becoming a good person. It's about letting Jesus fundamentally work in your life so that you become, you become someone different. Amen. And that, that different person then exhibits the good behavior that they're supposed to exhibit. Yeah. Because here's the problem. When you make it about good behavior, again, remember, even our attempts to fix the problem are tainted with the problem. Amen. When it's about you being good, what happens is one of two things happens. You either, you end up being good, and then you're just a jerk. Yeah. Right? Like, we've all met those people that are self-righteous, and they're, oh, we're good. Like, we're not like those people. Right? That's called self-righteousness, thinking you're good on your own. The Bible wants nothing to do with it. It says you should have nothing to do with it, because what you've done is you fundamentally said God is a liar, and you don't need him, and you'll figure it out on your own. That's what you've done. He said, I can be good without you. You're the, never mind that you're the one that's good. You're the one where, good, you're where goodness comes from. But I can be good without you. And we end up self-righteous, and we end up jerks, and we end up mean, and we end up thinking we've got all the answers. So that can happen. Or number two, we fail. Right? We try to be good, and we keep, and we just, we just throw our hands up in despair and go, I can't do it. Like, it, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm just going to, whatever, whatever. I'm just, whatever happens, happens. But neither of those approaches is what God wants. What he wants is for us to say, okay, God, I cannot free myself. I need you. And Jesus, through salvation, comes in and transfers us from slavery, from dead, from darkness, from blindness, into life, into the ability to see clearly, to, to light. And we are now a new creature in Christ. And the work that Jesus is continuing to do is getting you to realize your new identity. Right? The, the Israelites had this problem. Just because they moved one day from slave to free, like they got 430 years of slavery in their brains. That doesn't just go away overnight. You've got 30 years of sin or 20 years of sin or 90 years of sin or whatever inside of you. It doesn't just like disappear overnight. But what God had done is this, is he had freed them and now they had to learn to live their new identity. That they were no longer slaves. And listen, you're no longer a slave. There's been a fundamental change at the core of who you are. And it's still fundamentally changing as you submit to and surrender to Jesus. And God wants you to know you no longer live in darkness. You now live in light. You no longer live in death, but you live in his Life it is in Christ. There's been a change of your location from one to the other. And, and why is it? It's not anything that we have done. It's because his faithful love 
endures forever. It's not something we, we worked up. It's because his faithful love endures forever. And across this room, I think all of us who know Jesus, we have a, a Psalm 136 song to sing, right? That we would say this, to the one who set me free from drugs and alcohol, his faithful love endures forever. To the one who delivered me from the habits that were killing me, his faithful love endures forever. To the God who saved me from my own self-righteousness, his faithful love endures forever. To the one who saved me and put my marriage back together, his faithful love endures forever. To the one who saved me from the miserable person that I was, his faithful love endures forever. Amen. And just as Israel would have come into the room and rehearsed this song and sung this song, and it would have reminded them, man, this is a good and faithful, powerful God. So it should remind us, man, we serve a good, faithful, powerful God who has delivered us, who has set us free, who is good, who is in control, who created the world, and who is working still in my life and your life. Amen.